Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 82 of Suncast. And it's not obvious to me why there should be a megawatt of any other generation technology built other than solar again, period. Because by the time you do what solar can do in terms of cost, really installed, not talking about what a panel costs, but really where the installed cost should be, and you look at where storage can be, I just think we're going to look back in 20 years and wonder why we wasted all of our time on all this other stuff. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome back to Suncast Solar Warriors. This is episode number 82, and I'm your host, Nico Johnson. Man, I am so glad that you're back with me again this week. We're finally returning to the Solar Pioneers series near and dear to my heart. And man, you are really going to enjoy today's guest, Ed Theo. If you're a regular listener, I am honored to have you back. And in case you're joining us today because you're a fan of Ed's or have become a recent follower on Twitter or LinkedIn, I'm stoked to have you with us too. I hope you'll stick around and listen to some of the other amazing interviews we've done, like the other pioneers that we've interviewed, Jigger Shaw, Dan Sugar, Corey Vaughn, to name a few, or some of the more recent episodes with young guns like Adam Gerza of Energy Toolbase and Paul Grana of Helioscope. We're now 82 incredible episodes into this journey, and I'm so grateful to call you a listener and many of you friends. Hey friend, speaking of which, did you check out our recent Tactical Tuesday this week, number 81, with Josh Weiner. Torvalenza, a.k.a. Solar Fred, summed it up pretty well on Twitter, saying, if you're just getting started adding storage to your solar projects, you should give this episode a listen. The Tactical Tuesdays are designed to be short enough to ride along with you on your next commute, so please check them out. Hey, this episode is brought to you in partnership with SolRates.com, the fast and free online platform to provide your commercial customers with a credible lease financing solar proposal. If you have projects over $100,000 in value and you'd like to see how Soul Rates can help you quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal to your customers, please head over to mysuncast.com forward slash S-O-L-R-A-T-E-S and click on Request an Invitation. The episode is also made possible through our partner Alliant Energy, the innovative new Fully ballasted solar tracker. That's right. Fully ballasted solar tracker that is at home in the harshest environments, helping developers reduce project risk, increase yield, and keep their solar asset magically clean and productive and still able to compete on price. To learn more about this ballasted tracker and robotic cleaning systems, please visit AlliantEnergy.com. And hey, if you'd like an intro, please shoot me an email, Nico at mysuncast.com. Today on Suncast, we sit down with a true solar champion, Mr. Ed Theo. As you'll hear, Ed has a fabled history in the renewables industry. Accolades like attorney of the decade or one of the five most influential people in renewable energy are earned in the trenches. And Ed's been in the deal room more than just about anyone. Having worked on hundreds of deals, and over $35 billion in transactions during his 23-year tenure leading project finance practice at Millbank. When I started my solar career in 2006, there was one attorney who was routinely heralded as the best and has been credited with helping establish what many consider the modern era of project finance for solar energy. Yes, he is indeed a solar pioneer, and today I'm honored to spend time with Ed Fio, one of the founders of Coronal Energy, to better understand not just what makes 
that company different, but why some of my close friends just love working for this guy. I tell you, I was truly humbled by our conversation. And those who know me well know I don't often wish for a boss. But this was one discussion that left me saying, now there's a man I could get behind. I'd like to work for a leader like that. And that's part of what this journey is about, Solar Warrior. I am constantly searching, as you are, for the clues. You see, I believe that success leaves clues. And today, you'll journey with me through a conversation ripe with clues that I hope you will take to heart about how to build a life and career with impact, purpose, and tenacity. Stick with us as we discuss a variety of topics, including how Ed's favorite pastime has greatly influenced his leadership style, what it means to develop plate discipline, even as a home run hitter, details of Coronal's industry-first solar put contract with KWH Analytics, Ed's development advice to those starting their careers, the three things it takes to be a successful development company, and you'll want to stick around to hear his divisive, bold prediction. Hey, a special hat tip to Richard Matsui of KWH Analytics. In many ways, his interview for his Solar 100 series served as the departure point for my understanding of the core of Ed's story allowing me to probe further and explore more. Thank you, Richard. Well, Solar Warrior, thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with solar pioneer Ed Theo. Today we have the genuine pleasure of another icon and industry pioneer joining Suncast, Mr. Ed Theo. He's currently vice chair and co-CEO of Coronal Energy. He co-founded the company back in 2013, but his stint, if you want to call it that, in renewables and solar extends far beyond 2013. I have looked up to this man for many years, myself having been in the industry since 2006, effectively seeing Mr. Fio's name at the top of any project that mattered as I was getting into the industry, immediately put him to the top of the list of folks I'd like to someday get to meet. And today we get that fateful chance. He got his real start in the solar and renewables industry, at least for what we might consider the modern era of project finance back at a company called Millbank. We'll talk a bit about that today. And he led or co-led the group at Millbank that funded some of the projects that spearheaded and really pioneered solar law practice in this part of the century. But he didn't always have aims at being a solar lawyer. And so today we'll dig into the history and the travels that have gotten Ed to the place he is today, considered by many one of the greatest developers and lawyers of our industry, winning many deals of the year one of the most influential people in the renewable energy industry. And one of the ones that kind of gave me a chuckle is he one attorney of the decade. Not many can say that. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It is, of course, as I mentioned, a genuine pleasure to have you on the show. And one of the things that I get to do that I can scarcely believe sometimes is I get to hang out with guys like you who have made such a tremendous impact on our industry. And I'm really grateful when I can have conversations with guys who are still doing so. <laughs> you haven't hung up the hat. You're very much still in the game. We talked a little bit in the pre-interview, Ed, about your transition away from maritime law into renewables. One of the things that I find really interesting is that a lot of the developers I have come across in the solar industry tend to have really interesting hobbies and they're genuinely outdoor enthusiasts. I understand that you're quite the accomplished sailor. I do try. <laughs> yeah, that's been a lifelong passion and I still do it. It's a wonderful sport because it's something you can do until you drop dead, as far as I can tell. So that's my goal. But I do agree with you. And I find in the renewables industries, a lot of people you know, tend to have interests that are oriented around outside activities, whether it's you know sailing, kite surfing, hiking, biking. It's a pretty energetic group of people. And I suppose there's a nexus that if you're 
you know, if you spend time outside, you, you know, you, you do think about sort of the, the natural elements and how those can be used in a way which is positive from a energy production and, you know, other perspectives. You're not just a sailor, though. You are an accomplished sailor and you have sailing and racing teams. And I will link to some of the interesting, fun reading around Team Loco and some of the things that you're doing that don't have anything to do with project development. I love the ability to extrapolate the lessons from how someone looks at their whole life integration. What would you say are some of the most helpful skills that you bring over from sailing to project development, even energy law? You know, one thing is teamwork. I think most people maybe have a view of being on a racing sailboat with everybody yelling their heads off and great disarray and dysfunction. And my mission is always to have it so organized that nobody says anything because everyone knows what their job is and communication is handled in a way that it's extremely efficient. People who need to talk, talk, and a lot of communication can be made, you know, without a great deal of uh, fanfare. I would actually pride myself. I'm a little bit of an odd guy to sail with because I've been on races that have been a couple of days and I will literally not talk to anybody for two days. And and my mission is like, you know what? We will get there. We will be successful. And it's not me telling everybody what to do. Also from sailing small boats, which is really where I spend a lot of time now is just to be successful, which I won't claim to be as successful as I would like to be, which is maybe part of what keeps you going. It's really having to be very methodical. You know, in preparation, both in terms of the equipment in your physical preparation, you know, your fitness, your planning ahead, you know, everything, logistics to, you know, thinking through the race course. And then inevitably your plans fall apart at the starting line because things, you know, don't go exactly according to plan. So it's, do you have enough mental determination to be able to basically hang in there and just continue to effectively problem solving around the course? It's never ideal. And then when you're done, you know, it's, it's the ability to look at what you did and be neither low nor high, but look as objectively as you can about what went right, what didn't. Again, I'm kind of a pain in the neck because even if we do really well, everybody will be doing high fives. I'm like, well, you know, we could have done the following five things better. So they're like, oh, you're a downer. I'm like, well, no, I, this is all about learning. You know, I hear a lot of things there that are parallels to not just project development, but running companies. I think that's a great insight into how if you take anything from a perspective of lifelong learning, it can have impact and ramifications across everything that you do. I did read some interesting articles because I am not a sailor and I wanted to understand your world. I think that there was a really cool article by Keith Magnuson from Sailing Anarchy that accurately captures actually what you were explaining about how you develop a team. He goes through talking about how he developed a team. And as I was reading it, I was thinking through how the entrepreneurs and CEOs I'm working with are thinking through building their team. And not just, you mentioned the small boat versus large boat. I'm dealing with entrepreneurs who are going from small boats to large boats. They're going from no revenue, less than 10 million to 100 million. They're going from a three to five person team to a 50 person team and realizing, okay, the people I had on this boat can't go with me on that other boat which is often a difficult decision. How have you navigated that as you've moved into developing what was originally a finance shop with Coronal into now a full-fledged project development company? You have an interesting insight there because we, you know, went from, you know, basically a handful of people to more than a handful and have combined through acquisitions, essentially three different companies. You know, what I would say is that it takes a lot of work to get that done. And a lot of time spent on thinking through with your management structure and sort of who are the right people in the right seats. And they may not, you know, necessarily be the people that were in those seats, you know, before. And then having in place rules and processes so that, you know, people kind of understand the game plan. I mean, the one thing that I saw when I practiced law, and I actually enjoyed the most working with small companies because I kind of liked that dynamic of entrepreneurship and sort of starting something from scratch and making something. And yet what I saw a lot was it's difficult if you start with essentially a large ego with an idea, Mm -hmm. get the idea to go too far because you actually have to get other people to do things. Generally, at least my experience is that telling people what to do is not the optimal way to do it, but it's how do you get them to sort of understand where you're trying to go and, you know, do things on their own consistent with the mission. And again, that's, you know, if I talk about getting in a boat and communication being as silent as possible, that's effectively what that's about. We have gone through you know, at Coronal, a really significant effort to meld together our team 
from some very different backgrounds. It was not easy. And yet, you know, coming out the other side, it feel really confident in the, in the team that we have and sort of we have the right people in the right seats and we have sort of the set of procedures and sort of like the game plan that, you know, everybody knows how to do their job and kind of how it fits into the big picture and where we're going. I'll probably reference an article here a number of times in this interview. Huge props to Richard Matsui and the KWH Analytics guys for one of the best interviews I've ever read of a, of a solar executive at all. And I think for what it's worth, that for those of you listening, if you haven't read it, please go read it. My job is actually not to regurgitate what Richard was able to accomplish in a very distinguished interview. But you mentioned there that a lot of companies are, and I'll come back to this, they're long on gut and short on process. And what I hear from you is the ability to institute process and have people have a ratio of wins or a ratio of deals that allow them to filter the gut through a certain level of process. And a lot of that comes from the rigor that you developed in your own ability to sail competitively and to navigate the waters of literally of life, but also of project development, of energy law, et cetera. I wonder, as you were starting Coronal, it's not your first rodeo, what's been the easiest and the hardest thing about getting this business going? Expectations you had set that you had to rearrange? Probably the easiest thing was to mislead myself about how easy it would be. (laughs) Right. You said you're joining with one of the smartest, one of the smartest guys, you know, this, how hard can this be? You had Panasonic <laughs> yeah. in the deal from the beginning, right? Yeah. So we had Panasonic in the deal from the beginning and it seemed like this was a, a can't miss. And I think what I found was that I came to the business with an insufficient sort of level of understanding of the development business and the complexities around the technology. Solar, I think has, there's sort of a way you can look at it and it's, it's a little too simplistic. I think when you get into it, you realize it's like, no, no, that's actually a high degree of complexity. And the trick is, you know, how do you manage that? When we started, I don't know how many deals we looked at and turned down. And, and what I really learned from that was that this was as an industry, and we were an acquisition shop. So we were just out looking right. at other people's deals. And mm-hmm. frankly, it was kind of horrified by how not so good <laughs> a lot of development was. And part of it was, I think, maybe all of it was really driven by kind of a gold in the streets sort of mentality. You know, there was so much money to be made in these things and you kind of just, whatever you did, it was like, oh, well, you know, panel prices will fall and every sin will be covered by basically, you know, Uh a rapidly falling install cost. And yet there were things that I saw people do that in development that just seemed like they were taking undue risks or they didn't properly, in my view, sequence sort of how they were addressing risks. And for me, that's coming out of a legal background you do the same thing over and over for for a couple of decades and you just get a mental map of like how to problem solve. Yeah, That's not the only sort of area where you learn that, but that's where I learned it. And so when I would look at a lot of the things in a lot of the projects we look at, it just seemed like they didn't have any process map that made a lot of sense, at least from as far as I could tell. So it made it a lot harder to find deals that actually made sense from our perspective. I would say that was hard out of the gate. And then I think as we got our feet under us, we got a little better. I, I think part of it was we got a little better known. You know, one of the things that happens when you come into a market, you're the next guy in the door or the last guy in the door with money. And everybody who couldn't get funded before finds you, right? So by definition, you know, you're not exactly seeing the cream. That's right. And we thought we'd be seeing the cream, but the reality is we were just seeing, you know, everything that was extant in the market at that time. And in time that improved and we got better at being able to make our way through the flow and find the things and sort of get faster at finding things that work for us. I don't know if that was the hardest thing, but I think that was sort of the the gap that existed between sort of a going in, you know, enthusiasm and expectation versus the reality of like, gosh, how do you actually make money, you know, in the solar business? Can you walk me through the thought process of what I might consider your acquisition or, or strategic investment strategy? Helio Sage and then the, the engineering firm how did you, as the leader of the company, help the team think through that? I'm wondering also, did that come from inside of your organization and you had to simply agree that this is the right next step? And then is there anything about that process, knowing what you do now, that you would change? As I mentioned, we started really as, a, as an acquisition and finance arm right. team with Panasonic, right? Mm-hmm. So we're driving services to them. We're out in the market looking to acquire projects. The experience in acquiring projects was, as I described, sort of less than, you know, less than ideal. Mm-hmm. What we were facing was having to look at a lot of things 
that were not productive and then having, frankly, to pay up for things that actually met what we could do. Right. And so we thought, well, we're not going to get to the volume we want to get to, nor will we make the money we want to if we continue with this model. So we should, you know, we should find a development company, either build it or buy it. And it really was, I won't say easier, it was faster to buy one than to build one. And we were fortunate to find the, the team at Heliosage, which did have a significant portfolio of contracted assets at the time. And we struck a deal with them. And, and it really, that actually started, it wasn't a 100% acquisition out of the gate. It was in a little bit more of a joint venture. And we worked our way through that. And eventually in 2017, did a 100% kind of the acquisition of the remaining interests. The other piece that you know we noted we lacked was a, just a deep enough engineering bench. And so we and Panasonic were tr- trying to hire people and Blue Oak happened to come on the market at the time. The individual owned it, was looking for a monetization event and also recognized that there was a little more horsepower that he needed in the business. And so we did that acquisition. And while we ended up, I, I would say, we probably ended up with a bigger engineering staff than we actually needed for the business that we had at the time, what it gave us was just huge depth to be able to cover all aspects of development. So the combination of those three then, plus the finance function we already had, plus then adding in an asset management group really put us in the position of being able to do our own projects from strategy, real estate acquisition, development, you know, engineering, all the way through to ownership and asset management. I had thought originally that you had rolled Blue Oak in as an internal company, but it still looks like it has its own separate corporate entity, public facing I mean, Tobin, as the founder, you know, did well and built a great team there, but it seems like they are still separate from the Coronal brand. Can you help me understand the benefit of that? Yes. Blue Oak, you know, continues as an independent entity offering third-party engineering services. You know, they do that for contractors, developers. They act as independent engineer. Along the lines of a DNV or... Uh, yeah. Yeah, very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very similar. They also provide engineering services to us. And it's been useful because it means that we have people who have the expertise and the experience, which is sort of more than just working in our projects. For sure. And it also means that we get the benefit of being able to have an engineering staff, which is just deeper than I think what we could essentially carry on our own is, is how I would look at it. It's easy for big companies to say bold claims like the first or the biggest, or the best. Panasonic is a centuries-old company, 11-plus billion-dollar balance sheet. Nobody else in the industry can stand close to that. But still, I have a knee-jerk when I read, delivering the first truly end-to-end solar PV solution, I think. This is another grand slogan from a, from a, a solar company that wants to appear to be like this global leading brand, which not to say Panasonic's not, but what's behind that? What really informs being the first truly end-to-end PV solution? It's not obvious to me that we're the first because certainly, you know, I can point to other people that have attempted it or maybe have done it. What we've really worked hard at, and I think where we distinguish ourselves is that in that whole spectrum from the strategy of where markets are going to be through asset management and operations, we do in fact provide all of that and do all that, but it's in a model which is unbelievably process-driven. The key to what we do is is to have sort of the input from all of these various disciplines that really matter in the life cycle of an asset, sort of start looking at it from the time that somebody says, I'm looking at a piece of dirt in this state. And what we saw when we looked at other companies, and this, this was really part of the process of pulling together coronal energy as this, as this construct, which combined the financial development team and an engineering team from you know, three different companies, was to say, okay, so where is this business going to go? What do you need to succeed? And, and why have others maybe not succeeded? On the latter point, one of the things that really struck us was that there seemed to be like a tendency to come to the conclusion that there was some aspect of the business that was dominant, you know? So it was like, oh, finance drives the shop or manufacturer drives the shop. And if that's the case, then suddenly you end up with that one discipline triumphing over all others with the consequence that somebody in that particular winning group feels good, but you end up with projects that maybe are not optimized. And so our model was to say, okay, how do you get all these inputs to be equally weighted or appropriately weighted? And you can't get past sort of key gates in the development of a project without having essentially everybody from one of these disciplines sign off on it and say, yeah, I'm on board. 
So, you know, we would not have the phenomenon of people selling PPAs because it's like, great, their total incentive is to go out and book a sale and presumably get a bonus and then come back and hand it to the construction guys and say, well, good luck, you know, trying to, you know, meet my, the cost I threw into the model. And while it, it doesn't sound complicated, it is actually is complicated and takes a lot of work and practice to actually make that work. That's probably the thing that I would point to as sort of our key end-to-end solution. It isn't just to say it. Yeah. We're undoubtedly not the first to say it, but I feel like we're among the first that have brought a level of rigor to the process start to end that's it's really sort of the core of who we are. I wonder, you're partnered with one of the largest, most well-respected, deepest bankability electronics manufacturers in the world. Of course, there are advantages, but what's your Achilles heel? What do you feel like? When you go out in the market, actually, this is a hamper. I don't know if I would call this an Achilles heel, but one of the things that I learned in my law practice, where I did a lot of joint ventures between small companies and big companies, is no matter what anybody says, there are cultural differences and just the way business is done. And one's sense of time scale is different. And so I'd like to think we're nimble, but you know, we do have processes and approvals that we need on things from our biggest outside investor. And, you know, you got to understand how they work. I wouldn't say that's an Achilles heel. That's a realistic view of what it's like to be partnered with a large company, whether they're US, Japanese, German. And I suppose the other thing is there's also been maybe a sense in the market that sort of we're able to do things we really aren't able to do. And so we're actually not a product-driven company. Our relationship with Panasonic is essentially around a services business you know, that they have. And so people have come to us because they think we must be awash in Panasonic batteries. And and actually the answer is, you know, we're not. I mean, their batteries are going to vehicles. And from their perspective, that's a higher value use than sticking them in storage. And so, you know, we do storage projects, but, you know, people are always amazed. It's like, yeah, we're using other people's product (laughs) to go in there. Yeah. Because it's, you know, but that's part of the relationship is that, you know, we do use other technology, which we use their technical expertise to you know, sign off on it. I think with Panasonic, the upside has been not product. It's been really appreciating how much it's an engineering company. Again, this is another thing coming to it. I was thinking Panasonic, that's TVs and microwaves and yeah. you know, 10,000 products, which is true. But if you actually talk to them and understand the ethos of their company, it's an engineering company. You know, They are most proud of sort of the design side and the engineering side of what they do. You know, that's pretty special because you can tap into some pretty deep expertise. Ed, I'm going to change gears just a bit away from Panasonic and back a little bit towards your personal experience and how you have developed as as an executive in my preparation for this interview of close friend of ours who you've done work with suggests that there are really three lawyers who helped make solar what it is today. And you're one of those three. At the time, frankly, you were ahead of your time in the way that deals were structured, in the, the way that you thought about bringing models, approaches, business elements into solar. Does anything stand out in particular from your earlier days of helping some of the iconic projects get structured as particular moments of clarity or perhaps perspective for you that helped you get around the corner and get your customers around the corner? I always felt I was pretty fortunate to you know, sort of wander into the new energy field without really any background. I mean, I was also fortunate to have at least done a little bit of work to look at things like Shell has these, you know, great strategic studies that would show that this was going to be something at some point in the future. But I think in terms, like when I was a lawyer, frankly, a lot of what we did in renewables was sort of not within the framework or the model of the product that the law firm typically offered. I had some interesting years where in the area of project finance, you know, a lot of my colleagues would be, you know, working on multi-billion dollar gasification facilities in gutter. And, you know, I mean, these things would have, they would go on forever and the legal bills would be astronomical and it'd be extremely complicated. And I was working on, you know, $50 million wind deals. One of the things I learned pretty quickly in talking to the clients, probably more than anything else, what I was good at was just trying to understand like, okay, like what is going to get these people to want to, you know, hire us as opposed to somebody else. And what they were looking for was ease of transaction and determinability of cost. And Mm. so I kind of built my practice around just going in the wind sector in particular, going to developers in the space and just saying, look, the more work you do with me, the more determinable your cost is going to be. And so with a handful of people, we just had a relationship that was essentially one where they knew what the pricing was going to be kind of all in. 
because I could see where their business was going, as opposed to what I always describe as the unsatisfactory plumber experience, you know, which is like, I got a problem. How much is it going to cost to fix? Don't know. I'll let you know when it's all done. It's like, is it a dollar? Is it a hundred dollars? So I think trying to be responsive to what the client or customer was looking for was pretty helpful in that regard in a, in a model that was really oriented toward, well, how much can I basically load up in every, any one deal on the solar side? I didn't start working on solar. And as a lawyer, I was just always kind of intrigued by like these new technologies. And like when when was something else going to come along that was going to be able to be commercialized in a way where our services could be used? Probably maybe 2005 or so, I started to started to work in the in the solar area. And it was when companies like Sun Edison were first coming out with, you know, looking at doing effectively portfolios of DG. I actually had the benefit of working on their second deal that they did sort of as a portfolio. And the first one was they hated it because it was structured in a way where it was like trying to apply a project finance model to very small assets. The whole portfolio effect wasn't really accomplished because every $10 million or $5 million closing, you know, you had to go to a lawyer's office and it was a pile of paper, right? Yeah. And I looked at it and my feeling was like, you know, this seems kind of stupid. It's against my own interest in the short term because I make more money by the pile of paper but I'll make more money in the long term if I can help sort of model a way to do this that's a lot more transaction efficient. Again, less money to me per transaction, more money to me over time by the volume of transactions. You had to believe the volume would be there, both as a function of where the industry was going to go and also where your particular customers would go. So that was actually kind of fun because that was the ability to try to de-lawyer a product in a way that would make it more efficient for people to raise money. So we did the first one and then suddenly word got out, you know, it was basically working for a whole bunch of people who wanted the same thing. We've talked a bit about developing a sense of what works and filter because you work on a number of deals, right? And for you, it was as much about let's get that type of a client who's going to bring me a bunch of deals, which helps me deliver on a type of product that others are going to want, but also to deliver on a number of projects that give me a sense of what's working and to be able to give more confidence to clients down the road what's working, to be able to give my team internally a better sense of what's working, to continue to be a leader. I see how that translates directly to project development. One of the smartest things I read about the way that Richard pitched the entire interview with you, he called you the Hank Aaron of solar, right? And everyone thinks of Hank Aaron as the home run king, right? And while you no doubt have a lot in common with Hank, Richard points out, you know, you're known for out of the park hits. It's the lesser known, what he calls plate discipline, knowing when to swing and when to pass on project, we'll put it in that context, that makes you and Hank Aaron exceptional and respectable in your respective fields. I like that analogy a lot. In my assessment, there's not a lot of plate discipline, certainly in the development side, certainly in the early stage, the green field, right? I'm just curious if there are heuristics that you would apply. If I were to say, for example, how many deals do you think someone needs to see in their early career to develop a, a sense of plate discipline? What would that look like? I just think there's something to the level of expertise you get to and the ability to, it's, it's like any discipline. I mean, honestly, you know, it's the, you know, it's the 10,000 hour rule, only it's actually more than 10,000 hours, you yeah. know, to get to, to mastery of something, you have to do it a lot. Yeah. In the law business, when I thought about that, it was that you had to work really hard for a long period of time until you got to be good. And it didn't matter necessarily how smart you were. You had to be sort of smart. But what you really had to do was just be able to just keep showing up and like working on deals. Yeah. And the result of that, and I think the same lesson applies to development or anything else, is you develop a knowledge base and a judgment about things that you know how things will turn out and you know on you know the margin how things should happen. That's where I would always find people with experience would have the ability to focus on things that matter and not get distracted by things that don't matter and then make the right judgments with respect to the things that matter. You know, in development, there's so much to know. You know, like when we started the conversation, I was saying when we started the business and I looked at other people's projects, I just thought a lot of people were really terrible at this. You know, terrible in the sense of that they weren't really thinking through and they didn't clearly have the experience to understand kind of what they were really into. And then when you saw somebody who knew what they were doing, you could say, yeah, this is somebody who's really got an experience base, a process. They're getting this job done with the right 
sort of risk associated with it. Mm-hmm. For the solar business, I, I really do think that's the absolute necessity to succeed going forward. The days of you could make money by just hanging around long enough and prices would fall. I just don't see that. You know, now it's everybody who's going to be successful is going to have to figure out how to get by on essentially having a process where you can say, you know what, I'm capturing margin in a lot of different places. And at the end of the process, you know, I've ended up with something that's worth doing. And by the same token, I'm also making decisions as I go along and killing off those things that I don't, as a matter of judgment, think are going to be successful by the time to get the finish line. You also said that you think that being a successful development company comes down to three things, strategic view, understanding the how-to and timing. I imagine you spend time with your development team and certainly your executive team, coaching them through kind of fixing these issues, not just internally, but with the project assets you're buying or the development companies that you have relationships with and you're coaching. Ultimately, this comes down to you developing long-term relationships with developers, just like as a lawyer you did with developers, right? You're building trust with these folks. How do you coach these developers through fixing these issues? And I'd also love to know, like, what's the average gestation time for a utility-scale deal within your team? Maybe start with the latter. You know, Mm -hmm. right now, you know, we're doing development for projects which are out to 2022 COD dates. Wow. So, and we're in 2018 for those who are listening to this now. Yeah. So it's, (laughs) you know, it's it's three four years. Yeah. Wow. That's a pretty decent forecast that you've got to be able to make. No wonder you've got to have Panasonic behind you to be able to (laughs) ride through the doldrums. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, or manage your business in a way where you can ride through the doldrums. And that's, you know, for example, the the tariff case is probably a good, you know, recent example of that where, you know, our response to that was cover ourselves where we could and then hunker down, you know, sell stuff where we could and otherwise just push everything off and let's wait it out. And you have to have the resources to be able to do that. What we try to do for the developer that's you know working on a project is it's make sure you actually get all the input that's relevant. And that's this whole notion of having mindshare. To me, it's like I'm kind of less interested in any particular person's point of view. I'm interested in have we got the point of view of the development engineer, but also maybe the asset management person that has some input on this thing. Have we really gotten a 360 view of the problem? So we're really applying the best thinking that's available within our organization to you know solution. I'm also not real big on giving people answers. Hmm. But I think that's, again, that's sort of the entrepreneur's dilemma, right? It's like, if you're the person who started a company, the easiest thing to do is to tell everybody your view. And the problem with that is that everybody will be just like, okay, well, what does he think? That's, at least in my mind, not a great recipe for success because the better recipe for success is like, okay, you know, how do you get a bunch of people thinking about a problem in a way that maybe egos get checked at the door? And the goal is problem solve. I'd like to go into a segment I call hot or hype. And I'll start with DG, distributed generation energy storage. Interesting. Probably more hype than hot uh, currently, but it's, it's only because people are paying attention to it. I mean, look, I think storage, it is truly hot. The question is, where is it going to prevail? I don't know what the answer is. I, you know, We're on the utility side, so yeah. I think I may come across saying, well, this is where it's going to be. But honestly, to me, it, it kind of depends on where you see the regulatory framework may be opening up enough, for example, on the utility side, if you have to go through interconnection processes, you know, which essentially delay you years to being able to implement something which you can build in 90 days, that puts you on one track where on the DG side, it's conceivable that you can get a lot of stuff done within a very different regulatory framework. I mean, again, there are different issues with the utilities that could end up on that side of the meter actually sort of becoming the solution. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not obvious to me which one prevails at this point. What yeah. is obvious to me is like that storage as a solution will be basically the huge market of the 2020s. Mm. I'll quote you on that one. I like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, moving to the next one. Hot or hype? Microgrids as a core part of the future of the grid. I'm not that enthused. I, I think, you know, unless you start to define microgrids as some pretty large scale systems. Yeah. All right. Hot or hype, the nexus of renewables and the electrification of the automobile industry. I think the electrification of the vehicle industry is hot. That is going to happen. Less clear is the role of renewables. I think the right answer is solar basically rise right along with it. You know, I don't know that I have the clarity around by the time you take every internal combustion vehicle and have it, you know, turn into a battery vehicle, what exactly the load looks like and how much that displaces 
you know, the stores displaces generation opportunities. Hot or hype, blockchain as it relates to energy. 2030, come call me. <laughs> hype, got it. <laughs> Last but not least, hot or hype, commercial and industrial is the new hot market for U.S. solar. Well, I think that's hype because it's, it's hot only only because <laughs> because utility scale, you know, sort of has a big current, peak. Because of the yeah, current regulatory like, environment. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's sort of a, you know, it's like, congratulations, you know, you're the tallest pygmy. It's, it's, I think you had, <laughs> you know, we look real hard at CNI and it's a really difficult place to make money. Mm. There are niches where it makes a huge amount of success, but it's, you know, there's a lot of dead bodies out there. Yeah. So you're giving me a lot of tweets. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, I want to know, uh, actually, I, you, you just answered my next question. What position do you hold, maybe about the industry, maybe not, that is controversial? <laughs> okay, so I'll give you one. You can tweet this. The current administration may be the best friend the solar industry's ever had. Wow. Okay, because it has the potential to get us sort of outside of policy discussion and focused laser-like on creating efficient manically driven, hmm. process driven businesses. Controversial enough? <laughs> That'll do it. That'll do it. And I understand the logic. Along with controversial, you also are willing to take perhaps what some would think is risks, but they're certainly measured risks after getting to know you a little better that others in the industry are yet to take. And I believe that when that happens, there's always, I feel like a little bit of, you have better information. <laughs> you're not necessarily, certainly as a lawyer, you're not necessarily taking a risk. I really want to understand underneath the hood here, you at Coronal did the first ever solar revenue put with KWH Analytics. There are a lot of things I want to understand about a put and why you decided to be the first, why that's an advantage to you. The quote from Richard is, in 2018, a 1.1 DSCR, debt service coverage ratio, will become the new normal. Can we discuss how much this is actually saving or returning to your project in real dollars? Here's the benefit of what they have to offer. And it's really, it's a trade-off and it's a question of, you know, does it result in a positive NPV? Mm -hmm. And it's that somebody is stepping up through what's effectively an insurance policy to say the system will perform in a certain manner. And if it doesn't, money goes in to basically keep it going. We had a lot of experience with this, interestingly enough, because a lot of our deals, we benefit from a production guarantee from Panasonic, which works in a very similar way. And we've been able to get very low debt service coverage ratios because what you're really doing with this is kind of a plane and arbitrage between how a financing party looks at the technical risk and the performance risk of a system on an individual asset basis versus, say, in the case of the production guarantee from a Panasonic, an engineer's view of how the system's really going to operate. Right. Right. Or in the case of the insurance company product, combination of an engineering view, but also sort of a data driven view based on a wide pool of assets of how a risk is managed, right? I think they have a nice product. It's useful in terms of being able to get more debt, less equity. Mm, and right, it's really a question go. of that delta in cost between the debt and your cost of equity has an impact in terms of your return. And the cost of the policy basically just needs to fit within you know, the delta. And That's it's right. a good deal. Yeah. Does this replace like a Munich Re warranty insurance type of product? So my understanding of the, the Munich Re policy, or maybe not their policy specifically, but typically those have been... PowerGuard, Munich Re. These yeah, yeah. Kind of for the benefit of the manufacturer to cover their warranty risk as yeah. opposed to... That's typically been done for panel manufacturers mm -hmm. who have maybe less than robust balance sheets. So you can say, well, even if the manufacturer doesn't perform, can't perform, they're broke, you know, here's somebody who can basically pay to handle the warranty claim. It really is system performance. It's, you know, does the meter yeah. turn and subject to some caveats. If the meter doesn't turn, then, you know, you're covered. As you reflect over your career, perhaps thinking back to your heroes, what are some lessons or takeaways from the most important mentors in your life? I could look at my whole career and just say, you know, there's like a person, you know, who was a mentor at a key point and, and maybe the fact that they were a mentor made it a key point, right? Right. You know, that started with, you know, I got to law school. I worked for a judge who, I mean, I was pretty rough hewn character to have to say. I mean, I was like, I was not exactly <laughs> the right material to be a lawyer. And yet, you know, I went to work for somebody who was like this guy who was like, he, you know, he looked like a judge. He acted like a judge and was like, wow, two years working with this guy. It's like, you learn how to behave. You know yeah. what I mean? You know, and then I went to work for a law firm and I, and I worked for a guy who was just an absolute stickler in terms of, you know, how you write. Okay. Well, that's, you know, 
like that was hugely valuable. I got to go work for somebody who was a brilliant corporate lawyer and I was the only guy that worked for him. And I, you know, I slept under my desk, you know, that kind of stuff. But it was like, wow, you know, but for that, I wouldn't know what I know. Even fairly late in my, not, uh, not so late in my legal career, but kind of midstream, I worked for a guy who, I mean, he ran the banking practice at Mill Bank and he became the chairman of the firm. And this guy was just unbelievably smart, but probably more than anything else, the guy was just an absolute warrior. He would be the kind of person that, you know, Chase Bank would call up and say, we need you in Hong Kong tomorrow. And he would like put a shirt and a toothbrush in his briefcase and he'd be on an airplane and he'd be gone for a week. It's just like, wow. wow. Buy what you so, need when you get there. Yeah. yeah. So it's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, you just learn, you know, from people that, you know, that you're, you know, you're around. And I think that's, that's where I really benefited. And, and so when I've had people work for me, I don't know that you can force a mentor relationship, but if you're an older person, you kind of look out for people who work for you and you, and you try to think about like, how can I be helpful to this person? Well, there's anything from, you know, personal behavior to, you know, learning stuff. On the outside, someone might look at your career and think, wow, what a Cinderella story. Ed has had the fortune to work for all these smart people and he sort of stumbled his way up. And, <laughs> and like to hear you say it, right? It's like, oh, he's kind of, he falls up as I heard one guy say it once. But clearly there's a lot of stuff that doesn't show up on our resume. And I'd love to hear what lessons you've taken away from the area, the things that haven't quite gone right as you've navigated this entrepreneurial venture or journey of yours? Frankly, a lot of things haven't gone right. Uh, <laughs> and then you realize that's pretty much the nature of things, that's right? part of it. Yeah. <laughs> it. It's simple in the sense of you've got to be really good at defining the problem. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to have a really organized way of thinking about a solution. And I think it just comes down to also Maybe it comes back to tenacity, but be realistic, you know, not in an unrealistic, like, well, just, you know, sheer willpower will make things happen. Uh -huh. So, you know, I run across that as, as well. I, I just, I, I think probably one of the best things I ever learned was to be able to kind of look at not just a situation, but my situation, because there've been plenty of times where things were like not going the right direction and, yeah. you know, be able to kind of sit in the balcony and kind of look at the play that I'm in and decide, okay am I doing the right thing here? Is this where I should walk off the stage? You know, is this an ego exercise for me or anybody else? Mm. Or is it really something that's worth doing and we just have to find, we have to think about the path? I would love to know what you are most excited about. You mentioned that the 20s is going to be all about incorporating storage. How do you see business model innovation right now with regards to solar just taking an, a quantum leap? I think part of what's going to go on is, is that on the solar side, it really needs to develop, you know, more as a much more modularized product. I look at it now and I think we sort of have crossed a technology business with a home building business. Mm. It's not obvious to me that that's really how this stuff should be delivered. It's if you were manufacturing televisions, you would just be figuring out how to make the best television you could for the least amount of cost. Right. And you would be maniacal about that. You wouldn't be worried about, am I going to get a tax credit? You're not, you know, you wouldn't be thinking about, right. you know, which, you know, market is going to, you know, favor color TVs over something else. It's like, that's what you'd be focused on. And when I look at our business, I just think, I mean, the people who are going to succeed are just going to be really, really good about squeezing every last penny out of this that they can and manage the risk the same way. And it's not obvious to me why there should be a megawatt of any other generation technology built other than solar, again, period. Because by the time you do what solar can do in terms of cost, really installed, not talking about what a panel costs, but really where the installed cost should be, and you look at where storage can be, I just think we're going to look back in 20 years and wonder why we wasted all of our time on all this other stuff. I could not agree more. It's on that foundation and principle that many of us have put, have based our careers on being in this industry. And and I believe that what you said is, look, this isn't sexy. The business model innovation that needs to happen is being maniacal about efficient production. <laughs> That's who will succeed. So, Ed, you're a lawyer, which means you have read hundreds of thousands of pages of text. I expect that some of those were not necessarily textbooks or, or legalese that you also read and become a, an avid reader out of habit as a leader. I believe that leaders are readers. So I often ask, what book, if you could go back as a recent college grad, would you give yourself? In terms of something that's really meaningful as like, okay, if there was one book I would refer somebody to and say, if you read this, I think you'd be better off as a human being and you'd have a bit of a roadmap to you know, how to get your way through life. It's probably Marcus Aurelius Meditations. Ooh, good okay? one. 
But the problem is you have to be ready for what a book says. Mm -hmm. That's right. If you read it at 20, you don't necessarily read it the same. And that's what I believe. And that's why, you know, I think it's like, I read a lot of stuff when I was 20 years old. And when I came back to it 10 years or 25 years later, it was like, oh yeah, I now understand. I have all these scars. I wouldn't understand this, but for the fact that I have these scars. What consistent habit or practice has had the greatest impact on your life? I've been a lifelong journaler. Wow. Um, And, you know, I probably started when I was 13. And it's amazing because it's just, it gets to be a habit where it's a place that you can go Mm. and, you know, reframe what you're doing. You know what I mean? Just get thoughts down that maybe are non-shareable. And also it's a, it's a place to think about what you're doing just Mm. every day. As the Suncast audience is growing, is there something that someone listening to this might do that would help further what you're up to or your cause? Is there some way that you would have, was there an ask you'd have of the Suncast audience? I think if I would ask anything, it's just to keep moving the solar business ahead in a serious way. Mm -hmm. And to me, the serious way is discipline, it's process, it's not deluding ourselves, not thinking that policy is the answer to any problem that we have. I'm humbled always by the vision and fortitude and gut of leaders like yourself who are willing to say, I'm going to put a flag in the sand right now that four years from now, this thing is going to happen. And I recognize that a certain portion of that, like a hedge fund manager, is going to die. And I got to be okay with that. Yeah. Ed, let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else has tracked? What's in your crystal ball? I mean, I've told you what I think about what it takes to succeed in this business. I've told you what I think is where I think it's going to end up, which is there is a point in the future we're going to look around and solar will be ubiquitous, right? And, you know, between solar and storage, it'll be amazing that we've ever thought about any other technology, but that's a ways off. Well, Ed, whether we screw it up or not, I think that the path to success as you do is through discipline, process, and a healthy measure of gut feel. I've really enjoyed getting a sense of that from you uh, and how you've built not just leadership among multiple uh, companies in our industry, but a career that others in our industry can look to for advice and guidance. So thank you for what you've given to the industry and for being on our show. Well, thanks for having me and it was great talking to you. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.